What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Many of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, which is my effort to find the most interesting people in the world and sit with them for hours while I ask questions in an effort to learn. So it would mean the world to me if you would subscribe to the show on your favorite audio platform, watch episodes on YouTube, and tell your friends and family about the podcast. My goal is to help millions learn from the world's most interesting people. So let's get into today's episode. Today's conversation is with Juan Mizel. He is the founder and CEO of Grip Shipping. In this conversation, we talk about how he took his business from zero to eight figures in revenue, how he has gone on to attack an incumbent industry using innovation and technology, how he built a company in terms of hiring people, what processes they've put in place, and what exactly is going to be this trend of pressing a button on your phone and having cold, refrigerated, or frozen food show up rather than just hot food. This is a peek into the future, and it's one of the fastest growing companies in my personal portfolio. I'm super excited for you all to hear about Juan, what he's building, and how the world is about to change. Here is my conversation with Juan Mizell. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is brought to you by Cal.com. What do I have in common with Chad Hurley from YouTube? Toby from Shopify, and Alexis from 776 and the co-founder of Reddit, we all use Cal.com instead of Calendly, and we are all early investors as well. Cal.com is leading the charge of scheduling platforms in the open source sphere, offering you the chance to harness the efficiency previously reserved for elite corporations and tech gurus. If you like to have your calendar organized and be able to have an efficient exchange when scheduling, but you love all of the benefits of open source technology, then Cal.com's for you. They are transforming sophisticated calendar management into an accessible tool for all via a user-friendly interface. You can customize it and you can make your calendar work for you. Use code POMP for $500 off when you set up your team with Cal.com today. Again, go to Cal.com, C-A-L.com, and use code POMP to get $500 off when you sign up. Cal.com, an open source tool that allows you to take back control of your calendar, be efficient when scheduling, and make sure that no one can steal your time. This episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Do you like making a profit from sports betting? Well, set yourself up to take home the most profit possible using crypto to fund your sports betting, casino, and poker account at betonline.ag. You can avoid costly transaction fees, get your payouts lightning fast, and do it all securely and anonymously with the highest deposit and withdrawal limits in the industry. If you want to get in on the action, do it the smart way with crypto at betonline.ag. Head to the website, sign up with promo code POMP100 to get 100% bonus on your crypto deposit today. If you go and you deposit, they'll give you 100% bonus if you use promo code POMP100. Bet online. Go where the game starts. BetOnline.ag. Go check them out today. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Juan here with me. Uh, I thought a great place to start is you've taken a business from $0 in revenue to eight figures in a little over a year, which is not normal whatsoever. Uh, what are some of the lessons learned when you are hyper-growing like this? I mean, I think the, the, the first place to start is how do you build a team to do this? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, at the end of the day, like it all falls down on your team, mm -hmm. no matter what you're doing, 
um, in terms of a business. Like, yeah, you know, you can start a business and, and run as small as a few million dollars in revenue. But like, if you actually want to go to hyper growth and only have these as a beginning of your business, you need to build the team to be able to support that. And then the company culture as well. So, you know, as an example, company values, company values is huge for us. Like we live and breathe our company values. So as an example, we have, you know, being customer obsessed as an example, like you don't know how much we care for our customers. What's the craziest thing you guys have done on that front? I mean, like this is um, not necessarily a crazy thing, but like this is a, a funny story is sometimes people internally refer to us as a company instead of a SaaS as a CAS, which means company as a service, because we literally will do like anything for our customers. Like mm -hmm. we go so beyond for our customers. Like, you know, we need them to be profitable. We need them to be successful. We need them to be having like the experience of their lives working with us. We need like their customers to be extremely happy as mm -hmm. well, like, given how much, you know, impact we have in their actual operation. So, um, you know, as we make, we make fun of it internally. We say, Hey, you know, we're not a SaaS, we're not a 3PO, we're just a CAS, a company as a service. <laughs> <laughs> so what you guys do, uh, for those who don't know is, um, logistics for perishables. So food, flowers, uh, could be medicine, et cetera. Um, some people would refer to this as kind of cold chain, uh, part of the supply mm -hmm. chain. Uh, and what I didn't know before I met you and, and eventually invested in business is there's tons of people who are focused on logistics. Obviously Amazon's a massive business. They don't want to touch perishables, right? Mm -hmm. Because it spoils because there's all these issues. And so walk me through your time at ButcherBox. And like, how did you actually learn about the problem and then figure out what these potential solutions are? Yeah. I mean, perishables is as hard as it gets. Mm -hmm. um, it's very expensive and it's very time sensitive. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of risk throughout the whole equation. Because if you don't deliver things to your customer how you need to, then they're just not going to buy from you again. Mm. You're just not going to provide a good service. Uh, if you're buying a t-shirt in the mail, as an example, you know, not perishable, of course, you know, you might want it for a party. Sure. You might get it a day late and you're not happy because you wanted it for this party, but you still have a t-shirt. You can wear it like it's fine. But in the case of perishables, it's usually something you're eating, something you're feeding your family with, like a party you're hosting that, you know, you need the products for pharmaceuticals, which could be, you know, life-saving or very important for someone's health, or it could be flowers. And, you know, you don't want to mess up a flower delivery, right? <laughs> because you're going to get someone uh, pretty mad. So, you know, at ButcherBox, so, you know, for those that don't know the story, bootstrap companies scale from zero to 600 million revenue, um, you know, pretty fast in about six years. Um, so arguably one of like, uh, you know, the most successful direct-to-consumer companies in the space, you know, in the last like decade or so. And the interesting part about it is that 10 years ago or eight years ago, when we were start getting started with that, Perishables in the mail was not a thing. It was like, you know, we had to get over the hump of, hey, you buy a box of frozen meat and it shows up to your doorstep frozen. Like, you know, what the heck? How, how does this even happen? Mm -hmm. So early days at ButcherBox, it was like, hey, how do we get people to buy a box of frozen meat in the mail? And now through the years, consumer behavior has changed because they now know this. Like consumers know, hey, I can get online, you know, as an example, butcherbox.com, I buy a box of meat and it, one or two days it shows frozen to my doorstep. So with that changing consumer behavior, of course, there's a lot more demand in this industry and there's a lot more brands and products that have come alive, um, you know, in the last decade or so. And with that comes a problem. Hey, you know, how do I solve for this? Like mm -hmm. there's so many factors that go into it, like, you know, weather events, carrier performance, what liners am I using? What type of box? When am I shipping it? Where am I shipping it from? What type of product is it? Mm -hmm. Like so many variables that go into it that you really need a sophisticated solution to be able to like go from point A to point B and make your customer happy. 
the way I think about it is like uh, people didn't know 10, 15 years ago, you could press a button on your phone and a non-perishable could get uh, to your doorstep, right? So a book from Amazon or, or whatever. Now, I mean, a lot of people do it a lot. Like, you know, in New York City, if you go and you look in the lobbies around Christmas time, they look like Amazon warehouses. There's just tons and tons of boxes, right? Of people ordering things. Then the next iteration was I can press a button on my phone and hot food will show up. And once I started to understand, it's like, oh yeah, the guy down the street made it and somebody just brought it to me. But what you guys really are, are identifying is like, there's now a third wave to this trend, which is I'm going to press a button on my phone and cold food will show up, whether refrigerated or frozen. And so what are the things that people are doing with that? Like obviously butcher boxes, meat, are people shipping cakes? Are they sh like, what are the other products that really are getting shipped here? Yeah. I mean, you, you touched on a good point. This gives accessibility to the market mm -hmm. and market being the consumer who wants a product at their house because you can only like you can only keep food warm for so long, right? Like, you know, maybe 30 minutes while it gets in the, you know, Uber Eats or whatever other platform to your doorstep. But the cold and the frozen, what this creates is you can now have inventory in specific location across the country and you can get your product nationwide. Mm -hmm. Like you can make a product here in New York City and you can have it nationwide. Mm -hmm. Like the impact that that has, you know, for so many different products that you can make. So of course, you know, you have meat, you have frozen ready to eat meals, you have, you know, desserts and cake products, you have pharma, you know, you have things, of course, like, you know, like flowers, which is, which is, just, you know, semi different category, but you have a wide range of specialty products, even, you know, human grade pet food, which is, you know, a pretty fast growing uh, space and wildly adopted uh, across the country. But like, that's what has changed. You can mm -hmm. now basically press a button and you get a box of something perishable, so frozen or refrigerated in your doorstep. And, you know, with a few distribution centers across the country, then you can get to anywhere in the country in one and two days with the right technology, of course, and the right processes for making that happen. But, you know, think about someone that used to deliver a warm food to New York City and that was their market and they could only market, you know, mm -hmm. to this market and they could only sell in this market and... Now, all of a sudden, you know, they get this thing cold and they can keep it cold for a few weeks or, you know, a few months and you can just get it nationwide. It's, it's just like the whole movement is insane. What's so interesting to me about this is um, if you go back in history, right? And I, I like to fancy myself having read about history. <laughs> uh, food was never preserved, right? And the, until the invention of either freezing or refrigerating the food, there was no ability to actually preserve food through time. And so by being able to now freeze or refrigerate, all of a sudden you could have uh, food throughout different seasons. You could, you know, ship it places. There's all these things that got unlocked by just bringing refrigeration and uh, kind of freezing technology to the market. Mm -hmm. In some weird way, it's like history is repeating itself again. Right. And now you're saying, wait a second, we are going to take that same exact, you know, lesson from history and now apply it to this whole new world where frankly, there's, you know, a gazillion restaurants in any one geography. But if they've been previously just kept, you know, local, you now can make them in this case, national, maybe eventually globally as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And, and, you know, there's this concept of like flash freezing, for example, and you flash, free, you flash freeze at the peak of freshness. What is that? That means that, you know, like you literally like at the moment where the food is at the freshest point, then you basically run it through an extremely fast, very cold freezing process and you conserve the freshness. Mm. You know, something's changing the food, but you conserve the freshness. So when something is not frozen, it basically keeps deteriorating over time, always. 
So if you have fruit, for example, and you don't freeze it, then, you know, two weeks, three weeks, it's not eatable anymore. But if you like flash freeze it, pick of freshness, and then you basically, you know, thaw it and then you eat it in the next day, it's like as fresh, you know, as it gets, of course, you know, when you're speaking about something that has been, um, you know, frozen before. So even when you speak about that, like conserving food at that point and making sure that like through the entire value chain, when, you know, storing process, packing process, logistics process, getting to someone's doorsteps process, like if it's kept, if the temperature is kept to that point, then, you know, it goes back to what you're saying, which is like, Hey, you know, conserving food and getting it nationwide. It's like a whole other level right now across, across the nation. So what is the business that you guys are in? Like explain in terms of you guys have warehouses. Uh, I believe you have a billion dollars worth of goods that have kind of gone through the network. Like I'm a customer of grip. Who am I? And like, what am I interfacing with or what am I getting from you? So, yeah. So let me give you some, some history in this. So when, if, if you were a perishable direct to consumer company, you know, five years ago, basically you had to figure out internally the back half of your business, which is, Hey, I create an amazing product. I sell it through a point of sale system. Now, how do I get it to the final customer? Mm. Which, you know, all these companies that have amazing products are not necessarily logistics companies. Like it's a, you know, different worlds. Mm -hmm. So what we do, which is a and, lot and of- Just real quick. And on that, what you're basically saying is like, if you were selling, I don't know, book stands, you could focus on the product. Somebody orders it, you just hand the book stand to FedEx and they're, and they're, you're good to go. But now once it's perishable, FedEx and others may not want to take it. You may have to change the, the process or whatever. Like, like there's complexity with the perishable that changes what maybe normal business goes through. Totally. I mean, they, they, yeah. they, they take it, but you focus on what you can control, which is, okay, who am I giving it to when it comes to the carriers? And then how much refrigerant am I adding into the box? And mm -hmm. then what, you know, how much insulation am I sending this with and where am I sending it from? So mm -hmm. like if you focus on the variables that you can control mm -hmm. and then you give it to the carrier or shipping service that data says that performs the best to that specific code with that specific product, mm -hmm. and then you get it to the final consumer. Got so, it. you know, what, what I was saying in terms of the history is five, 10 years ago, you had to try to either build all this complexity internally, which means spending, you know, $10 million internally trying to build and maintain these systems, or you would basically just give it to a shipping carrier and hope for the best mm -hmm. without necessarily focusing on, on what you can control. So what we've done now is we basically have like connected all these different data points to say, Hey, focus on your product. Mm -hmm. Like focus on your sales, focus on your branding, on your marketing and what you can actually do best. And then let us do the rest. It's similar to like when you work with a company like Stripe, for example, where if you're running a direct to consumer company right now and you're trying to recreate or rebuild Stripe, like good luck. You know, mm -hmm. why, why are you spending your resources doing that? So with us, it's basically like, hey, listen, focus on what you can uh, control on your end and focus on what matters for your business. And then you basically send the product to us. So send the inventory to us. Once you sell something flows into our systems, we run it through what we call a shipping engine, which figure out what the absolute best way to get it to the final customers. And then we get it to your final customer. So it's like basically the, the full back end of it. Now, when we first met, um, you had done this at ButcherBox, figured all this out, and you realized everyone else was going to need to do this as well. Um, and one of the things that you use as an example is weather alerts and how weather could delay a shipment 
And that would change the decision-making of what you put in the box. Describe maybe an example in terms of like, how does the software tell people like, oh shit, weather's, you know, bad weather could potentially disrupt this. And like, what are the changes people are making as they're actually creating the box with mm -hmm. the goods to send to the customer? Major weather events and perishable products, if you combine those two, is a good way to get gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. You want to you fast track your way towards gray hair, like combine those two. Um, and that's because like there's, the, let's say there's a wildfire in California and you know, you're shipping 10,000 boxes to California this week. And if, if you just like basically don't have someone checking, you know, weatherpage.com mm -hmm. and trying to make those decisions and trying to figure out like what's going on with the major weather events and the wildfires and your boxes, then you can very easily just have like a hundred thousand dollars on the road. Just, you know, like mm. good luck. Um, so that's like one of the biggest changes and things that we went for just because for me was so stressful when I was managing this. Mm. where we were trying to basically match. We had a guy internally at ButcherBox, we used to call the weatherman, which it was like, hey, you know, your job is to go to weather.com and figure this out. Um, you know, those resources could be better spent, of course, doing more value added activities, but it, it goes back to like, hey, you're shipping a hundred, you know, boxes or a thousand boxes or 10,000 or whatever the number is. Like, how do you proactively know that the route of that box is going to be impacted by a major weather event? And then you proactively reach out to the customer and say, hey, we're about to ship your box. We notice it's impacted by a major weather event. Do you want us to hold it, you know, cancel the shipment, send it in two days or three days after the major weather event is gone? You basically just like took a bad experience, flip it on the head and make it a very good one for your customer. Mm -hmm. Because if, you know, I'm shopping on a brand and uh, with a brand and they send me an email or text saying that, I'm like, okay, these people have their shit together. Mm -hmm. Now, um, what if they say, nah, send it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, some companies are, are you know, risk averse. Some, some are not. Some are basically, hey, you know, we know, we send it. And now we're going to also send communication to the customer, basically saying, hey, if something's wrong, let us know. We'll make it right for you. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like having that information to make it right for the customer, it's where basically the data uh, matters. Now, as you uh, kind of see this play out, maybe what are the most surprising things, right? I mean, again, super fast growing business, uh, one that you already understood kind of what to build, but now you got to go build it for other people, not just a, a company that you're working at. Mm -hmm. um, what have been the biggest surprises? I wouldn't say, I mean, not necessarily like a, a big surprise, but it's a reminder. And, and this is what we started talking about of like how much your team matters mm -hmm. because like at the end of the day, you only have your team to build a company. Mm -hmm. So everyone needs to be committed to building what we're building here, which is a once in a generation company and going like all in on that. Mm -hmm. And that means, you know, like long hours, that means a lot of effort, that means like thinking outside the box, that means going the extra mile, that means like always delivering A plus work. Mm -hmm. And like, as I'm saying, not necessarily a surprise because, you know, kind of knew that going into this and, and from my time at ButcherBox as well, but, uh, you know, I'm always like, you know, reminded about that. I, like every time I see the, the team working so hard. Mm -hmm. Now, where are you finding these employees? Like, are, is there a certain archetype that you're looking for? Are there certain backgrounds that you're you're going for? Are you just looking for, you know, smart, hardworking people? How, how are you putting this team together? Uh, smart, hardworking people, for sure. <laughs> That's, uh, we need that. Um, but through... Now, one of the goals for this year, or, or one of the things that we're focusing on this year is uh, defending our company's culture, 
And I say defending because, you know, we've built a pretty good company culture and now we have to defend it as we 2X, 3X and 5X the team. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we do for finding these people is through the interview process, every single person that's going to interview a candidate, they get one company value. And their job through this interview process is to screening this person for this one company value. Mm. So that's something that basically if one person in the team, you know, raises a hand and says like, hey, I don't think that they pass the, you know, relentless improvement company value. We're like, okay, you know, we're not hiring this person. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's, you know, that doesn't necessarily answer the question of like, what's the source of these people? But the, the, the framing that we use for hiring people is, hey, how well can they get, come in here and how well can they play within our company values and culture? So like relentless improvement is one of the company values. How do you screen for that? Uh, I mean, there's like multiple questions that uh, you can ask someone, but when it comes to relentless improvement, as an example, we work internally with what we call fast innovation cycles, mm -hmm. which means that nothing has to be perfect for launching, but you work very close with a customer and then you go from idea to product to feedback very fast. So we ask, for example, for situations of, hey, you know, when have you involved, when have you been involved in launching a product and like guide us through the full, um, like guide us through the full cycle of launching that product. Um, you know, something that we don't do internally is lock ourselves in a room for six months, work on something, thinking that we're building what's right and then go and try to launch it. Like we bring the customer in day one and we get feedback from them day one and we launch with them, you know, day one basically. So we try to screen for those things, you know, asking for, uh, situations where they've been involved in, in, you know, building product like that. And when you're going through this process, how much of it is you're interviewing them versus you're trying to sell candidates on joining? Like it's a little bit of a dance, right? Between you're trying to screen, but you also, if you get them to the end, you don't want them to be like, man, these people are assholes and I don't want to work <laughs> here. Right. So yeah. how do you balance that? Um, I mean, we, I'm, I'm very blunt uh, through the hiring process and I basically shoot straight with, Hey, this is how it's like to work here. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's tricky because at the same time, you don't want to scare people away too much, mm -hmm. but if you actually do, then that means that that was probably not, you know, the right person to, to work in the company. Mm -hmm. But, uh, as you say, you know, it's a dancing act of like, Hey, getting someone excited to build an industry, to innovate within an industry, mm -hmm. but then getting them to understand like how hard it actually is and how many sacrifices you, you have to do, you know, on a personal level, on a, um, you know, like a, the work balance level. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. It's, it's, it's definitely, you know, a balancing act between those two. Now, um, you all have physical locations as well. You have these warehouses. Talk a little bit about uh, maybe the benefits and the downsides to, you know, many software companies that are just like, hey, we write software. Uh, we have office, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, you guys have warehouses. You're moving, you're moving physical products. Like, like there's a lot of complexity here. And I think a lot of software entrepreneurs would look at this and be like, that's not a business I want to be involved in. Does that actually a competitive advantage because it's hard? Or are there other downsides that, that maybe they are right on? Uh, that's what I want to be involved in. Like if someone says, Hey, I don't want to be involved in that. Like that's, like, that's where we come in and that's mm -hmm. where we add value because like software can be very pretty and mm -hmm. software can, you know, look beautiful and, and it can do some things, but it's really mostly valuable when you get that to connect with the physical world. Mm -hmm. And when you get the software to basically like have the hand inside how the goods move through the through the physical world mm -hmm. that's where you basically like you know one plus one does not equal two mm -hmm. that's where you now basically like exponentially 
increase the the like the value of an industry and and the benefits of like you know working with a provider like you mm-hmm. and and a lot of people scare away from it and and maybe they're just like not not built for that and and maybe you know maybe it's not the type of company that they're trying to build but the way that we are approaching the solution we need to have our hands you know inside the process because there can't be any data holes mm-hmm. like if you basically ship the orders or the software says hey ship the orders this way but then you basically don't know where your orders are you know within the next five hours or 10 hours then that's a hole that you need to get visibility into because that impacts your uh end customer experience mm-hmm. so that's why like that's where we want to be involved because that's where the whole happened mm-hmm. now what is like the north star here right like like how big can this get what does it look like you know five ten years from now what, when you kind of wake up and you're like this is where we're going what is that what, what is that path so i mean to this point we're definitely the most innovative company in the space uh, we um, are taking these you know very seriously from a innovation improvement and like a plus customer experience standpoint so you know in five years from now we're definitely going to be like the company known in the space for this whole thing and this means that you know, as I was saying before, if you're a company that ships direct to consumer products, perishable, which means refrigerated or frozen, then you focus on that. And we are the company that you trust for the back half of that. Mm-hmm. So basically you're just providing the infrastructure for all these D2C right. companies. Now, um, there's a bunch of D2C companies I could rattle off right now off the top of my head that ship hmm. things that are uh, perishable. Um, how much of the future business is going to people who have perishables but don't ship? And saying to them, hey, you should be shipping, right? Kind of, hey, right now you're sending this stuff in New York City, but actually you could do it nationally. Let us help you do it. Yeah, it's a combination. And, and we see you know, a big value out on both because we work with a very big retailers that they don't do it because they haven't been able to do it. Like mm. they don't have the technology, they don't have the resources to be able to do this. So it's an interesting mix of customers because the, the, retail, the big retailer has already figured out the product itself. And they have the resources for the marketing and people know their brands pretty well. But as I was saying before, that's very different from becoming a logistics company. So they haven't taken a stab at becoming a logistics company. And that's where there's a very big opportunity where they basically just, you know, have these as another massive, um, you know, sales channel for, for them. On the other hand, you have, you know, the companies that are already at, you know, multi-million dollar companies like a butcher box would be where, you know, this is just a massive value add versus what they're doing internally, because one, they can use resources for something else. And then two, you know, I was giving this Stripe example, like, you know, if you try to build Stripe, you're never going to be as good as them for payment processing or some other company that does this because like, that's the whole, the only thing that they do. That's mm-hmm. what they focus on. Mm-hmm. Now, when you start looking at um, the other competitors in the space, you said that you're the most innovative. Uh, many people may think, oh, there's another technology company doing this. But actually most of these are, 50, 100 year old companies have been doing this for a really long time. What are some of the main differences between working with like a, an incumbent that is a big company, but slow moving bureaucratic and kind of like outdated from technology versus with you from the customer's perspective? Like, are there very obvious, you know, things where maybe in another industry, it's like, hey, this guy's got a fax machine, this guy's got email, right? But like, what, what is it in this uh, specific vertical? So how the industry evolved is, you know, frozen storage companies, usually do pallet in, pallet out, which means you bring a truck with a pallet, a product, forklift downloads uh, the pallet, gets counted or, you know, verify that it's the right product, gets put in the freezer. And then sometimes they pick a case of that specific product and ship it out. Or most of the times they take that same pallet and they get it somewhere else. So basically pallet in, pallet out. 
The industry over the last years have innovated and has been forced to move into the itches, what we call it, which means, hey, you now take the pallet, you open it up, and you actually grab the product and put it into the box that is going to go to the final customer. So it's not the pallet being moved and it's not even the crate that's being moved. It's actually the individual skew Correct. is getting picked up. Correct. So, and and the industry has been evolving into that because of the, you know, direct to consumer offering that has been also coming up, coming up online over the last few years. But, you know, it, it's a very different offering when it comes to pallet in, pallet out to the itches and then getting that to the final consumer because of how much more complex it is from a variable standpoint of how many more things you have to do and then how much more data you need to actually do it right. So, you know, there's great companies from um, like a warehousing and storage space that have been forced to move into this, but that's just a one small piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. Like when you take that and you add technology and much more scanning and data to that and you interconnect it then with, hey, what happens before that? And then what happens after that, which means before that is, hey, how do I decide how to send this box? And then after that, how do I monitor and how do I control how that box is getting delivered to my final customer? Mm -hmm. That's the biggest difference uh, in the space. What are some of the numbers you can share in terms of like how big these markets are? Right. So you, you said that you've uh, overseen a billion dollars worth of goods already, which is to me like that's a massive number. Um, you scaled the business in a little over a year from zero to eight figures of revenue. How big is the market? Like, do these businesses do tens of billions of dollars in revenue or, or what? I mean, multi-billion dollar market, um, for sure. You have, when you split it up, you have basically the, the like the direct-to-consumer meal kit companies, which is a multi-billion dollar market. Then you have the specialty products, which mm -hmm. is multi-billion dollar market. And within this, you have like, you know, things interesting as like frozen pizza from Chicago. Mm. Like there's thousands of people across the country that, you know, buy frozen pizza from Chicago on a daily basis. And that's a multi-billion dollar market by itself. Then, you know, flowers, like five plus billion dollar market. And then you have the whole pharma industry, which is, you know, insulin in the mail. It's basically shipping that in the mail. It's very similar to shipping, you know, a piece of refrigerated or, you know, frozen something on the product in the mail. Mm -hmm. So that within, within itself is also a billion dollar market. So when you combine all these things, you know, you're talking about multi-billion dollar, multi dollar market. And like, let's say uh, the pizza from Chicago, the people who are selling that, how many of them are like, I have a pizzeria in Chicago, it's good pizza, and I figured out how to sell online versus somebody in Chicago is like, man, none of the people who have you know pizza parlors here in Chicago know how to sell online, so I'm going to create like a brand and it's <laughs> like frozen only, right? Versus, no, this is just an extension of an existing brand. It's a combination. I mean, if you have a brand that people already recognize and you open the market to the nationwide, that's just, you know, just like so many more sales that you can get through the same market, like through the same people mm -hmm. and nationwide. But then you also have the people that basically say, hey, you know, pizza from Chicago has a massive, like, you know, ring to it and people know it, you know, deep dish pizza, a lot of people love it. So I'm just going to build that and focus on that because I know that they want, I can get nationwide coverage. So you see both for sure, because if you have a very recognized brand, like why not get it nationwide? Mm -hmm. And how much of this is like consumer uh, changes, right? So like ButcherBox is a good example where um, obviously people want to get meat, like they're going to go to the grocery store, they go to you know a Costco, whatever. Um, but there was like, it gets delivered in the mail. There's a subscription element to it. And also it was like healthier food. And so is that more so like the offering is so compelling or is it, no, the consumer's just going to go on their phone and order stuff and like, you got to be there. And if you're not there, they're going to order from somebody else. 
I think it's accessibility mm-hmm. uh, comes down to that because that way you get access to like what you really want, not just what you have available around you. And that's the biggest difference of it. Because if you say, hey, I want to buy this product and it's made in New York, but I live in Miami, mm-hmm. then you, you just have it accessible. You go online and you buy it and it shows up to your doorstep. Before that, it was like, okay, I want to buy this product, but this is made in New York. I'm not really going to go to New York right now. So like what's similar to this around me in Miami? Mm-hmm. So that whole like accessibility um, question, I think is what marks the biggest difference on what this used to be, you know, 10 years ago versus what it, what is it now? Mm-hmm. And when you think about lessons learned at ButcherBox that you are replicating with Grip, what's like maybe the biggest one or two outside of the team? Like just, hey, I got to have a high quality team, but what else, what are some of the other lessons that you're, you know, I have to make sure I implement this? Um, I think having a, a mentality of getting things done now. Mm, like an urgency. Urgency, correct, mm. correct, urgency. Because like... Oftentimes companies fall into this trap that they talk about initiatives and they talk about projects and innovations for months and months and months or weeks without necessarily acting, acting on it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, one of our company values is actually, you know, bias towards action. And that means that we go into a meeting and if we chat about something or we discuss something, we do not leave that meeting until the next step is figured out. Mm. And it happens right there. Even if the next step is like, hey, we're not going to go forward with this, we decided and we do it. But we don't leave things in the air. We don't leave things in a state where you basically don't know what the next step is, mm-hmm. even if there's no next step. So that, like, when you think about that, that makes you move so much faster, mm-hmm. which is, hey, we're going to decide this now and work on this now versus, hey, this is something that, you know, we might do. And we're going to work on this like in two weeks, which means that it ends up being pushed two weeks because when you meet again in two weeks, it's like, wait, what did we chat about, you know, two weeks ago, like, Mm -hmm. which is what we're going to do. So uh, that's, I think, one of the biggest lessons uh, from ButcherBox and and how we got to move very, very fast initially. And that's something that we've definitely, you know, taken over to Grip and implemented here as well. What do you think the biggest mistake so far has been? Like everything is this amazing success story, fast growth, but like, what are the, what's something you look back and you're like, yeah, you know, we, we messed up and we learned from that. Um, it's a good question. Um, I think for me personally, Mm -hmm. uh, it's probably, uh, like doing too much Mm. initially, um, because like I I get so obsessed with quality work. Mm -hmm and with A plus work that I sometimes hold too long to that work Mm. and do it myself. But something that I've learned over time is that you need to trust the people that you work with to do A plus work. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do that, they're just never going to grow and never going to get to do A plus work if they were not doing it before. Mm -hmm. And I think initially for me, that's, that's one of the biggest mistakes where I think if you do that, you just end up building, you know, a longer term, stronger team. It probably takes more investment initially, you know, personally by, you know, like letting go of something or teaching something uh, to someone. But, you know, after you get to do that, like that's when you get to exponential growth. When you look at um, 
the pharmacy space. I know that you guys aren't doing a ton there yet, but but I think that there's a, a belief that there will be a big market there. Um, what will that look like? What are the similarities and differences to, you know, D to C uh, kind of food or, or beverage stuff? Mm -hmm. We have all the, the, the weight loss industry is massive now. You know, Sempic, it's has been blowing up. Everyone is, you know, supposedly trying that and, and, and consuming that. And the, the similarity is that you get a product of refrigerated something to a doorstep. Mm -hmm. Like it's a, it's a very, very similar process. I think regulatory wise, it's different on the pharmacy side, of course, because, you know, everything needs to be checked out by a pharmacist. So, so you need to have the infrastructure for that. And then sometimes you can't get some products from one state to the other uh, as well. So like from that standpoint, it's similar, but when you look at the logistics behind it, the decision-making behind it, the customer experience behind it, a lot of it is extremely similar. Mm -hmm. And is your thought process that uh, right now, people obviously are ordering a lot of non-perishables. I would actually argue in some cities like in New York, uh, I mean, you see the delivery drivers carrying hot food around everywhere, right? And so maybe there's not as much hot food being delivered as non-perishables, but like definitely it's rising very quickly. Eventually will cold be the same? Uh, I think it's a it's it's for different uses and different needs. Mm -hmm. uh, people usually go to cold food when they want to eat healthier mm. because they know that they can get this product to their to their doorstep and they can then control what they eat inside their house by either like they get the ingredients and they cook it themselves or they have a very uh, strict routine of how they eat with basically like the meals you know prepared for them or, or almost prepared for them. So that's like one segment of it. The other segment is, as we were talking, like the specialty products. Um, I mean, we've talked about these, my mom's favorite cake, um, <laughs> Lady M. Um, which, if anyone from Lady <laughs> M is listening to this, please get in touch with me. We've been trying to get to the CEO for a while, but he, he's ghosted me. <laughs> Backstory on this is my mom loves this cake. This cake is made in New York. And every time that we used to come to New York with my mom, we buy this cake for her. And now, you know, she moved to Miami. Uh, I moved to Miami, actually not. She didn't move to Miami. And every time that she visits me in Miami, I order this cake and it's in the freezer when she goes there. So that's like the whole other market. It's like, you know, specialty products. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, damn, this is, thing is made in New York. When she comes to Miami, I just ordered a couple of days before that and it's just in the freezer waiting for her. And she's probably happy. <laughs> and she's happy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is there other customers out there that you're like, man, we really want to work with, uh, these people. I know there's a whole bunch of like, you know, customers on a list, but like, what are like the two or three dream customers? Um, Lady M. <laughs> Lady M, Lady M and Lady M. No, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. That would make my, my mom happy. Um, but, um, I mean, like we really like innovative products and mm. innovative companies. One of the feedbacks that we've gotten from our customers is that they like that we move as fast as they move, mm. um, which it's definitely different and new in this industry. So my the companies that I like the most is companies that, you know, we complete their onboarding process for in like a week. Mm -hmm. It's like so fast. Everything just happens. They get integrated into our API or Shopify app and everything just happens so fast. So, um, you know, I'm passionate about those companies because I think that those are the companies that are going to succeed. And given that, according to the people internally, we're a company as a service um, instead of a software as a service, um, we like we get to basically get very like interconnected with their teams and their systems. And that's what excites me uh, when it comes to, to new customers. 
All right. Before I let you go, uh, give me the like one minute pitch to a customer. Why should they use Grip? So if you are a direct to consumer, refrigerated or frozen company, and you want to improve your bottom line and service your customer better, Mm -hmm. you need to be working with us because there's not a single company that we've worked with where we can't make their operation better. Mm. Uh, I've been very proud about this because every time that we get to chat with someone, look into the data, there's always a massive value add in terms of how they're doing things now and how they uh, would do them with us. And that's two things. One, you're starting a new direct-to-consumer and you're a retailer, or two, you already have a bunch of frozen or refrigerated products in the mail that you want to basically get to your customers in a better way. What is the one minute on why people should come work at Grip? <laughs> uh, if you want to grow uh, professionally, personally, and you want to help us build a once-in-a-generation company, uh, this is this is the place for you. And then uh, what is your message to all the people who think that you can't be successful? <laughs> <laughs> I've had some of those. Um, I'll keep trying. You know, I'll keep trying. Uh, it's, uh, I, I love to work. I mean, you, you've, you've seen me work. This is something that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about. And, um, you know, I, it's something that I saw at, at my, um, you know, growing up, uh, looking at my dad, basically working hours and hours a day. He's a beast. Yeah, he's a beast. Um, there was things that he liked. So like, that's basically what I know how to do. So, yeah. uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the only thing I'll say about Juan's dad is, uh, you warned me, uh, he, he came to Miami and you told me beforehand, uh, he's you know, like, look, he just, he works a lot. And, uh, I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. And, uh, then I saw it in person and I was like, wow, I work a lot. Juan works a lot. Juan's dad might work longer <laughs> than both of us. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I, um, you know, like if, if you grow up in a household where you see your dad work yeah. 24-7, there's one or two outcomes. One is you say, I don't want to be like this guy and I don't want to work. So you're going to like hate work. Yep. Or two, you're going to go and you're going to say, hey, you know, this, like I want to become mm-hmm. this guy mm-hmm. and I look up to this guy. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to work harder than him. Mm-hmm. I don't think that I work harder than him, by the way, but, you know, at least I, like I got that. You, you know, get the positive impact. Yeah, I got it. the positive impact of that. Yeah. And and not to say that, you know, you don't need to get, take care of like other things, right? You know, you still mm-hmm. have a, you know, beautiful family and you need to take care of that and you need to build relationships and have experiences and, and you know, mm-hmm. have friends. But if you're working towards something that you're really passionate about and that passion, it's not necessarily like the product, mm-hmm. but having an impact mm-hmm. in the people that you work with and the customers and employees and changing their lives for the better, mm-hmm. then it, like work becomes life and life becomes work. Like mm-hmm. this thing of work-life balance at that point is irrelevant because it's just, you know, the same thing that makes you happy, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, the part that too, that I think um, as a parent now, uh, there's times where I'm like, if I work a lot, this is a good example to a kid. And I and I actually think that like, it's, this, it's the other end of it where, um, I wonder if you did a study of a bunch of parents, like, do they end up actually working harder knowing that their kids are watching? I don't, I don't know. But like <laughs> it, I catch myself sometimes being like, it is good that I am working because my kids will realize that, you know, you have to work hard to get things in life. Totally. I mean, I, I've seen your kids at, at the office while you're, you know, in meetings that are just like around you. So, you know, growing up, what are they going to remember? They're going to like, oh, you know, I, I, I have, this is like, there's this fun office culture where, you know, I can be at and have fun and work and like enjoy the people 
around me. So, you know, <laughs> that experience is unbeatable. In, in our office in Miami, the kids only wanted to come because Juan was there <laughs> and, and, and he would play soccer with them. <laughs> He'd never let them win though. He would always make sure he won. <laughs> awesome. All right. Where do we send people to find you on the internet and find out more about grip shipping? Uh, you know, gripshipping.com uh, is just way. And then the company's on, LinkedIn, on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, Juan C. Meso or Juan Meso. You can find me on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn as well. All right. But gripshipping.com. Correct. I appreciate it very much, my friend. You're building a fast growing company. Hopefully we do this again in the future. You're doing a billion dollars in revenue. There you go. Good to see you.